Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Pastor Michael. Thank you, Michael Kwong, for leading the prayer. Thank you, Nate, for singing the songs. Um, we're doing a sermon series on the attributes of God. And today we're going to look at the attribute that God is eternal, that he is eternal. And it is one of the most profound, uh, mind-boggling, and one of the most comforting and life-giving doctrines in the Bible. And I got to say that I can't think of a better time, um, a more fitting time than now to talk about these things because our world is convulsed by turmoil and violence and injustice. And so how should we respond to these things? How should we respond? I think there are two bad responses. I think uh, the first bad response is to ignore, to look away. To say, I'm just going to read my Bible. I'm not going to be troubled by what I see in this world. I'm just going to sing hymns and focus on God. So that's the first bad response, to ignore, to, to look away. But the second bad response is to get caught up. Is to see all the problems in the world and then to jump into the fray, to get really busy, but to do it without prayer. To do it without reflection in scripture. So what is the Christian response? It is not either of those things. It is not disengagement. It is not frenetic engagement. But it is engagement rooted in devotion to God. And so today, and so today we're going to meditate on the doctrine of God. And we're going to look at his eternal nature. And we're going to see that while the whole world rages... God is seated on the throne. And when you can grasp that, when that becomes the controlling vision of your heart, that will empower you. That will equip you to go out then into the world to be an agent of change. That is the only way that you can be useful to God. And so we're going to read Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is really one of the most majestic, one of the most um, powerful psalms in the book of Psalms. It's, it's in many ways a companion psalm to Isaiah 40, which we looked at in the call to worship and which we began the sermon series with. Uh, we're just going to read selections from Psalm 90, about half of the verses, but let me read it for you, starting in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. For, for all our days pass away under your wrath we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger or your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us. 
and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of God. So I have three points. First, we're going to look at um, the brevity of man. Secondly, we're going to look at the eternity of God. And then finally, we're going to see what the psalmist means when we are to number our days. So we're going to look at first the problem. We're going to look at the answer. And then we're going to look at how then shall we live. So let's begin. Number one, the brevity of man. So if you look at verse three, the psalmist writes, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. So the psalmist here is reminding us of an important truth, a foundational truth, which is that man is mortal, that we will all return to the dust. And this despite all of the rushings and and hurryings of human activity, which seems so important in the moment, which seems so urgent and so consequential, and to which we give so much of our emotional and psychic energy. But then in the end, in the end, the psalmist tells us in verse 9, that the sum total of human life is but a sigh. It's a puff of air with no lasting impact it is like a footprint on the beach sand. Imagine that you're, you're walking along the beach and you turn around and you look down on your footprint and imagine that in the footprint is all of the drama, all of the significant events in your life, your birth, the, your wedding date, um, your, the birth of your children, your job, your your career, your retirement date, right? Your grandchildren, all of these milestones in your life. And then as soon as the footprint is impressed upon the sand, the waves come in and washes it away. And it is, it is, is as if it was never there. So that there is no memory of it. There is no remembrance of it. Let me offer this test case. How many of you know the name? And I'm just, just the name, okay? How many of you know the name of your great-grandfather, right? The grandfather of your parents. And technically, you, you have four, right? But, but how many of you know the name of your great-grandfather? You know, that person lived less than a hundred years ago. They had this whole life, all this drama, all these events. And if it were not for his life, you would not exist. And you don't even know his name. Human life is such a small and momentary thing. About four years ago, I had a significant health scare, and uh, I've never shared it with the whole church, although when I was going through it, I shared it with a number of people in the church. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to be a little bit graphic. Um, It's going to be kind of gross, but please bear with me. But a little under four years ago, um, one day, suddenly, I had blood in my urine. I didn't know at the time that it was blood, but, but one day, I went to the bathroom, and I, and in my pee, right, in my, my urine looked like fruit punch. That's what it looked like. It looked like fruit punch, right? And, and I remember thinking, that's strange. I've never seen that before. And it continued through the whole day. And I remember 
at the end of the day, you know, I was, I was wondering what is going on? So I came up with this explanation, right? I said, you know, yesterday I went to the grocery market and I bought this new brand of dark pink lemonade, you know, and I bet that's what it is. It's somehow strangely dying my, my pee. So I, I stopped drinking it, but it continued into the second day and then without stopping into the third day. So that finally I went to the doctor. Christina insisted that I go to the doctor. And I was sitting in my doctor's um, office. My doctor took a sample and um, he went back into his office. He looked at it under his uh, microscope and he came back looking very grim. And he says, it's absolutely, there's blood in your urine and uh, your condition is called hematuria. Heme means blood, urea means um, urine. And he said, this is not normal. And so let's find out what's going on. And so he immediately started scribbling in his uh, um, prescriptions and I mean, not prescriptions, but ordering scans and tests and sending me to different specialists. And thus began this long rambling journey through the healthcare system. Um, I I had two nephrologists, which is a kidney doctor. I had a urologist, which is um, a doctor for for your bladder and your urinary system. And um, I went through countless tests, countless scans. I, I had a cystoscopy. A cystoscopy is where they put a scope and to look inside of your bladder. And by the way, I have a hilarious story about my cystoscopy, which I can never tell in this in a sermon setting because it is inappropriate, okay? So <laughs> I can never share this story. But if you ever want to have a good belly laugh, Please come and come to me privately, and I will tell you my story. Um, but I went to all of these tests and all of these scans, and at a certain point, my doctor said to me, "He said, you know, this is beginning to look like this might be cancer." And the moment he said the word cancer, I didn't hear anything else that he said. I just went immediately into shock, right? And I was like, how can this be? I'm, I'm 39 years old. I'm so young. You know, my mind was racing. I immediately thought about my two boys who were, who were so young. How can, I, how can I die? And for the next two weeks, my diagnosis was uncertain. And let me tell you, for those two weeks, I had a lot of sleepless nights. I remember one night I I woke up in the middle of the night and I was thinking about Judah and I was thinking about Noah and how they might possibly grow up without their father and I started to cry. I just started to sob uncontrollably for hour after hour. Well, the tests and the scans came back and I didn't have cancer. And then for a long time, my doctors thought I had some kind of debilitating kidney disease. And the whole experience was really intense because you have to understand the whole time I was bleeding and the bleeding continued without any abatement for nine months. For nine months, every time I went into the bathroom, I, I would look down and I was like, I'm bleeding out. I'm dying. And then finally, at the end of this nine month ordeal, suddenly the bleeding stopped. And my nephrologist thinks, you know, and she was trying to explore, you know, this theory at the time, and she had ordered up this really extensive scan of my kidney. She thought that 
there was a blood vessel in my left kidney that had thinned out and was bleeding. It's sort of like an aneurysm. And then she thinks what happened is somehow my body patched it up. It somehow healed itself and I'm okay now. In those nine months, do you know what I learned? I was reminded once again, really impressed on me, the truth that the Bible and the Psalms are always telling us, which is the impermanence of human life. The impermanence of life. In verse 10 in our passage, it says, at best, we get 70, maybe 80 years to live. And even then, life is full of trouble, full of toil. And then, and then we die. We perish. We become food for the worms. And in a few generations, no one will even remember your name. No one will even know that you lived. And so what was it all for? What is the psalmist telling us? He's telling us, you better find something more solid to build your life on than your health. Because your health can fail you at any moment. You better build your life on something more solid than your career, than making money, than any kind of political cause, than your hobbies or recreations or even your family. You better find a rock upon which to build your life that will not move and that will stand the test of time. So that's the first point, the brevity of man. The second point, the eternity of God. In verse 2, the psalmist writes, Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The psalmist says that before the world was created, God is everlasting. And the word everlasting there is is translated from the Hebrew word olam. Olam means age or eon, it means a really long time. And then when you double it up, right, when you say olam ad olam, it means age after age, uh, eon after eon. And it's talking about God's eternal nature, his everlasting nature. Now, listen to me. What do we mean when we say God is eternal? What are we talking about? We are not simply saying that God has existed all throughout time, which by itself would be an amazing statement. We're saying something much greater than that. We're saying that God is unlimited by time. He is unbound by time. If you could think of time as as this line, right? This, This timeline that stretches out, then God is not in the line, He is above the line. He is outside of the line. And as finite human beings, I got to tell you, we have no idea what that means. We have no idea what it is to be outside of time. And the only way that we could understand God's eternality is by negation, is by saying what it is not. Because human beings We are time-bound creatures. And we all experience the, the limitations of time. So, for example, 
we cannot change the past. Right? The past has an enormous power on us and influence on us, but we can't go back and change it or amend it. We could only remember the past. We could only recall it, and even then our memories are quite often shaky. We have no access to the future. If 2020 has taught us anything, no one has any idea what is coming next. Who knows what the second half of 2020 is going to look like? We have no idea what the future holds. We can only guess and speculate. We live perpetually in the present. And in the present, we can only act upon what is the time that we're in. We only have control of this, this narrow slice of time that we are in and only within our domain. And so this is what it means to be a time-bound creature. We experience it, we experience time sequentially. This moment, then this moment, and then this moment. And we don't have a time remote control. We can't go backwards in time. We can't go forwards in time. But we are constantly always bound by this moment. We can only act in this moment. But God is not bound by time. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, this is what it says. Listen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. It's telling us that God is eternal. He is not bound by the past. In fact, there is no past for God. He is not limited by what is to come in the future because there is no future with God. But God transcends time. And what that means, and this is really going to be hard for us to to, to wrap our minds around, right? But all of time, in effect, is present for God. And here we're we're using human language to try to understand God's nature. But all of time is present for God, and therefore God can act on all time periods because he's not limited by our timeline. And and this is very hard for us to grasp, but God doesn't experience time like human beings. He doesn't have to remember the past because, again, there is no past for God. But the past and the future, they're all happening right now before God. And therefore, all of time, all of time is vividly present for God. And he sees and he experiences all time simultaneously as this ever-constant present. And this helps us to make sense of a verse like 2 Peter 3.8. 2 Peter 3.8 is really an expanded version of verse 4 in our passage. It's a very famous verse. Listen to this. It says, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So let's analyze this. Let's break this up into its parts. The first part is a thousand years is as one day. With God, a thousand years is like a day. Because, you see, God doesn't feel the passage of time. 
He doesn't experience time sequentially. For us, you know, great expanses of time can be a daunting experience. You know, waiting for something is, is often an excruciating experience, but God doesn't and never has to wait because a thousand years is as one day. And this is why, by the way, God is immutable because time doesn't change God. God doesn't experience the passage of time. And then the second part says, one day is as a thousand years. You see, because all of time is ever present before God, listen to me, each second, therefore, stretches into infinity. God is looking at and experiencing each moment in time forever and ever. And this includes, by the way, not just all of human history, not just all of you know, geologic time, which is you know, almost unimaginable for us, but this includes also the infinity of time that is awaiting us in the new heavens and the new earth. See, when we go to heaven to be with God, we will always and still be time-bound creatures. We will still experience time sequentially, this moment, then this moment, then this moment, but it will stretch on forever. We will never die. And this is really going to cook your noodle, but God has access to all of time, including all of the time that is infinitely ahead of us in the new heavens and the new earth. This is why God is omniscient. Because he has studied every second forever. There is nothing for God to ever learn or discover. My favorite illustration of this is, you know, imagine that God is this observer standing on top of a mountain. And beneath him is this winding river coursing through the land. And that river represents time. And on that river is this little boat. And seated on the little boat is you. And the river is your life. And you're going down the river, but you can't ever see beyond the bend. You can't see if the waters are calm or if if there are rapids or if there's going to suddenly be a waterfall. But God, who is on top of the mountain, he sees the whole river. He sees all the parts of the river. And at every stage along the river, you can see God looking down on you helping you and guiding you. That's the eternity of God. It's an amazing doctrine. Listen to Psalm 48, verse 14. This is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. So that's the eternity of God. That leads me to the final point. How then shall we live? And here I want to break it down into two two, um, conclusions, two implications which is, we are, number one, we are to number our days. And then number two, God will establish the work of our hands. Okay, so number our days, God will establish our work. So number one, we are to number our days. Look with me to verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So the psalmist here is telling us that we have to recognize and embrace our limitedness in time. You know, because as human beings, we so easily fall into this conceit that we're going to basically live forever. I mean, we know in theory that one day we're going to die, but that 
truth is an abstract, faraway idea that we don't really feel in our bones. When I was in the middle of my health scare and when my doctor thought that it was quite possible that I might have cancer, I remember praying so intensely. And I would pray to God, I would say, Lord, have mercy on me. Please extend my life. Please give me just a few more years to live that I might be there for my boys. And I remember thinking in that time that every day is so precious. Every year of life is a gift and never to be taken for granted. And I remember thinking, you know, just so much of the petty drama of my life, you know, that I get so caught up in, that that draws so much of my attention. Such a small and passing thing. Do you know what happened? I prayed and I prayed. Many people in the church prayed for me. I got the test scan results back. I didn't have cancer. And then later when they thought, you know, you know, they thought very, this was most likely that I had some kind of terrible kidney disease. I was going to have to be on dialysis. I was going to have this debilitating illness for the rest of my life. It ended up that I didn't have that either. And then nine months after the whole ordeal began, the bleeding suddenly stopped. And then two months after that, I went back and did all the tests and so forth. And I came out clear. I'm in perfect health. and There's nothing wrong with me as far as I know. And I remember feeling just elated. I remember feeling just full of joy and thanksgiving. It was a miracle, miracle. My life was extended. Do you know what the lasting effect of those nine months has been for me? Other than the occasional moments that I talk about it, I've completely forgotten. I've completely forgotten about it. And I'm sorry to say that I have reverted back to my old life, my old habits. And I find myself so often just caught up in the busyness of life, caught up in the moment by moment drama, you know, all those things that are so urgent and so loud that, that, that demand my attention that I have forgotten and I have neglected the important things in my life. Why is that? You know, the human heart is so myopic. And we lose sight of God. And we lose sight of the people that we love. And we focus and our priorities are on all the wrong things. And so verse 12 says, teach us. Teach us to number our days. And the psalmist is saying, oh Lord, give us a heart of wisdom that we might live each day well. That we might live our lives fully for the Lord so that if tonight you should die and you should meet your creator, you can stand before him with a clean conscience without any regrets. So that's the first thing. We are to number our days. The second thing is, God will establish the work of our hands. Look um, at verse 17, which is the last verse, the concluding verse of the psalm. It's an amazing verse. It says, 
let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word established there is the Hebrew word kun. And kun means to, to build something that will endure, that will last, that will stand the test of time. And what this verse is saying, I think, is really profound because it answers, it, it, it provides the answer to one of the greatest problems of human existence. Do you remember that question that I asked earlier in the sermon? How many of you know the name of your great grandfather? And I'm willing to bet almost all of you don't know his name. And maybe if you know his name, you know almost nothing about his life. Because in reality, virtually everything that we do in our lives will have no impact. will leave no mark upon the earth. And this is true not just at an individual level, this is true at a civilizational level. If you go to Greece, if you go to Rome, you will see the remnants of these once mighty empires and all of the, all of their accomplishments, all of their greatness and genius and wars of conquest and their monuments. All that is left of them, of them are these ruins. And in a few thousand years, even those ruins will crumble into dust. And they will leave no trace upon the earth and no one will remember them. Verse 3 says that all of humanity is returning to the dust and insignificance. And so why should we try? What difference does anything that we do make in this world? But, but if you make the Lord your God, your dwelling place, That's what it says in verse 1. If you build your life on the rock that is an eternal God, then listen to me. Everything that you do in this life that is for Him will last forever. One of my favorite verses is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Verse 58 is the last verse in Paul's magisterial chapter in which he's talking about the resurrection that is to come, that all who are in Christ will rise from the dead and live with the Lord forever and ever. And the concluding verse is this. Listen to this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, listen to this, that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. I think those are some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Every act of kindness, every work of justice and mercy, every secret prayer, Every moment of faithful endurance in an unhappy marriage, and I know many of you are in that situation, when you do it in the Lord, depending on His strength and for His glory, that will become, in the new heavens and the new earth, listen to me, a lasting monument that will stand forever. 
It will reverberate in the new creation forever. And I think that, you know, when we enter the new heavens and the new earth, all of us, we're going to be shocked. We're going to be surprised at what in the end matters. And we will see that all the vain works of man, all the things that look so impressive, that get all of the attention and the acclaim in this world will be counted as nothing, less than nothing, as chaff in the wind. But every act of service and devotion, no matter how small, every faithful deed of love, and self-sacrifice that no one notices, that never receives credit in our world. When you go to be with the Lord, Jesus will say to you, my dear child, did you think nobody noticed? The whole time I was watching you, I saw every little thing that you did for me. Well done, good and faithful servant come into the joy of your master. I believe that this is the greatest incentive to work with all of our strength. Because you know what that means? It means everything matters. It means that everything that we do in love of God and in love of others will last. It matters. It will make a difference. Let me close with this final thought. If God is eternal, and listen to me very carefully, if God is eternal, that means everything is already determined. It means that what is still the future for us is not the future for God. And in fact, the future, so to speak, has already happened with God and before God, and therefore, the future is already written. It has already been determined. There are two implications from this. The first implication is that we are predestined. That's what it means. Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5, listen to this. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, his eternal will. And of course, the immediate question that people always ask is, well, well, does that mean that we're not actually free? We're just puppets and God is sort of pulling the strings. And the answer is, we are truly free. There are no strings. Everything we decide is truly our decision. And at the same time, it is God who ultimately writes our story. And some of you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You just told me two opposite things. They both can't possibly be true. And the answer is they are both true. It's a paradox. It's one of the deepest paradoxes in all of scripture. And you see this paradox all throughout the Bible. And let me just give you one example. It's one of my favorite examples. I love this verse. I love it so much. I made my boys memorize it. It's Proverbs 16, verse 9. Listen to this. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The heart of man directs his own way. It is man who is deciding, man who is planning, but ultimately it is the Lord who directs his steps. Think about that for a long time and your head is going to hurt. But the second thing, so the first thing is we're predestined. The second thing is more significant. 
more amazing. Listen, the second thing is that God has determined to slay his son from eternity. The cross was not a response in time to the fall of man, but the cross was already determined from all of eternity. Revelation 13 verse 8 says this, Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. He is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Do you know what that means? It means that God already knew. He always knew that when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he would be sending his son to the cross. You see, it's one thing to love someone. It's one thing to love someone not knowing what it will ultimately cost you. It's one thing to marry someone not knowing that ultimately they're going to be unfaithful to you. It is one thing to bear a child, to love your child, to adopt a child, not knowing that ultimately they are going to break your heart. But God knew. God knew all along that when he set his love on us, He was putting a dagger into his own heart. I think this is the deepest thing that can be known about the eternality of God. Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. We can think about that and meditate on that for the rest of our lives and we will never come to the bottom of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We are like a little child standing before your eternal nature. We can feel around the edges, but we cannot penetrate. You are a God full of wonder and delight. Give us now a deep rest in your wisdom, a deep trust in your sovereignty, a deep confidence that everything is going according to plan and a deep passion to work with all of our might, knowing that our labor is not in vain. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus, who is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Amen. Amen.